This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Trojan fans. It's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. to Rotate fans. Welcome to an emergency edition of the Peristyle Podcast. It's Saturday. USC just lost to the Oregon Ducks in the Pac-12 championship game at the Coliseum 31-24. to So we needed to do an emergency Peristyle Podcast. It's been a while since we've done one of those. we got Gerard Martinez on the line breaking all down. Follow him on Twitter at GMartLive. Gerard, how you doing, man? Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I've never been on an emergency podcast so i'm not sure what to expect here but it's an emergency so i'm here all hands on deck all hands on deck we had to do this we'll have our regular shows harvey hyde and keely and all that but we wanted to do this emergency one gerard's had some great insights on twitter if you follow him during the games uh more just kind of like giving a general feel for what's going on and kind of taking it all in and then producing some analysis from what he's seen and that's always been some some good stuff so we wanted to get you talking about the team it was a busy recruiting week for you Gerard because of signing day but there you know 48 hours later you had this game to talk about and so we wanted to get you on so we appreciate doing that obviously USC fans uh, pretty upset losing to the Ducks is pretty unique and we haven't really done I can't remember the last emergency one we did it was probably last year sometime really no you know need for emergency podcasts when the team hasn't lost yet even though there were some some close games but usually after a Pac-12 championship game Gerard like me and Dan driving down from you know Santa Clara or whatever doing a a show in the car so uh this is a little different because this one was in the Coliseum a little different and very different in how the game ends and Oregon actually getting the Pac-12 trophy on the Coliseum turf which was something that a lot of USC fans pointed out and it's got to be something that sort of resonates with the football program that you had one of your arch nemesis within the conference actually hoisting up the trophy in your home field. It is. And, uh, you know, I put a column up today about this season being a failure. Um, you know, the, the schedule was neutered. It was significantly easier. Uh, USC had a tremendous talent advantage against everyone they played. Uh, maybe up until the Oregon game, but still, I think, a talent advantage in that game. And, you know, still needed three fourth-quarter comebacks to get to a 5-0 and mark. But to play an Oregon team that has hadn't won a game in about a month, lost to Oregon State, lost to Cal, had their starting running back out, um, this was, and you're playing at home, this was all set up for the Trojans to win. Yeah, I get it. They had to play a short week. Um, there's been crazy stuff, but USC's been pretty lucky. They didn't have to play the... 
the best team in the South outside of USC in Colorado. They didn't have to play what was the best team in the North in Washington because of the coronavirus. Um, and they never, you know, it wasn't like Keaton Slovis was missing games because of the coronavirus. They never were missing their best player. So to me, Gerard, this was all set up that USC should have at minimum won the Pac-12 in 2020. And losing to Oregon on a fr- you know, on Friday night, 5-1 and one, to me, that's just not good enough. You, you, you needed to win the Pac-12 this year, and I don't see them being any excuses why they shouldn't have. Yeah, I kind of tweeted last night. If you're a Helton supporter... If you are a diehard supporter of USC football, you can say this was a 5-1 season, which is still a good season. You can say that offensively, if you look at the statistics, within six games, the offense played pretty well from a passing standpoint. And obviously, that's what the scheme is slated towards, is passing the football. And defensively, you have to say that this was a step forward. This has definitely been a better defense. It's been a defense which we've seen adjusted from game to game within games as well, which is something that we didn't see from Clancy Pendergast in past years. But if you're not a fan of Helton and you're not a fan of the trajectory of the football program, you're going to point out that this is a season which USC really could have and probably should have lost four out of six games. The Arizona State game, the Arizona game, the UCLA game, and then this game against Oregon All four of those games, USC needed some heroics just to be in it at the end. You're talking about Hail Marys. You're talking about onside kick recoveries, which are really rare in college football. And USC's had two of them this season because they've changed the rules. You're talking about a lot of things that had to happen in order for them to be there at the end of games in order to win some of those games. And even in this game, USC really shouldn't have been in it at the end. The way they played in the first half... You came away feeling like this is a game that should have been 35-7. And instead, it was 21-14. USC had an opportunity at the end of the first half after a tremendous interception return by Kanai Munga. And they come up with no points. And that was just, oh, wow. How can you not come up with any points on that drive? And it just sort of seemed par for the course with the inabilities that they've had. And certainly, the games that they've lost within the last probably two to three years, and this is another thing that's going to drive the people that are critical of Helton and the football program crazy, is that when they lose, they tend to lose the same way. There seems to be a sort of recipe or formula for them losing, and that's inefficiencies in the red zone, turnovers in the red zone, penalties, and the defense, even though I said, and I do believe that it's definitely been better this year and it's been an upgrade this year, they seem to have issues on the edge. Oregon attacked them the exact same way that Iowa attacked USC last year in the Holiday Bowl. Yeah, I mean, good points there. One of the things, we're going to talk about a lot of that. One of the things, though, is when you mentioned taking a step forward and reading through, or I was listening to Clay Helton's comments from last night, you know, it's Friday night after the game. Uh, and I put a couple of um, a couple of his quotes in my column, but I don't see how you can sell this as taking a step forward. I, I feel like the only step you could have taken this season was to win the Pac-12 championship, not winning the South, uh, you know, beating, I think there's three combined wins on the team USC, USC's beat this year. Not that it's USC's fault, the, the schedule that was laid out there, but you were basically given a pretty damn easy path to winning the Pac-12. You didn't even have to play the best team in the North in the championship game, 
Um, but to me, it's the, the talk about steps in the right direction. I can't, I mean, how many years is it going to take for you to build a championship program to say, we're this close, we're one play away. And I mean, I, it, it just doesn't work for me, Gerard. I don't know what you think about that. But it just doesn't seem like this program is going in the right direction. To say that, you know, Clayton would keep saying, we're playing our best ball at the end of the year. And he's just discounting getting blown out by Oregon and blown out by Iowa, which happened at the end of the year. He's talking about the, the crappy teams that the, that USC beat where Slovis threw for, you know, 400 yards a game or whatever. I I just don't see this team as taking a step forward uh, from this season. I, I, I stand by what I wrote. I mean, this is a failure of a season. This is not a step forward. I agree. I see where you're coming from. And, and I agree that in terms of trajectory, USC sort of just lingering and meandering a little bit. And it's not that clear step that you would want to take, especially in a season, like you said, where things lined up very well for USC. They didn't necessarily line up really well at the end of the season. They did have to play three games in, what, 13, 12 days. There were some things there that could have gone better for them in terms of preparation. This game, offensively, if you want to look at it, it looked like they were playing a pickup game. It didn't seem like there was a lot of game planning that went into this game, that USC sort of went out there and said, well, we're going to do what we do. And they just came up against an Oregon team that said, well, we're going to do what you what, what you don't want to do. We're going to force you to do certain things that you don't want to do. And we are going to game plan specifically at your strengths. And USC just had no answers for that. They just kind of sort of were out there a little bit playing. In terms of the statement for this year, I think the contrast would be, Look, this was a year where obviously it's different, it's unique, the schedule is unique, there was a lot of challenges. I'm sure you're going to hear a lot about USC being in Southern California and Los Angeles County and there being so many restrictions and them having to jump through hoops in order to just play football week in and week out. And there always being that sort of dark cloud of health officials basically shutting down the football program. And that's not like that everywhere else. There's obviously other places in the country where they're playing football much more freely than Southern California. And so there would be a little bit of that, hey, just us having a football season was a victory for us. Now, I understand where you're coming from and where probably 99.9% of the other Trojan fans are coming from. I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Yeah. They're going to say, well, look it. That's lowering the expectations to such a point that we don't even want to follow the football program anymore. If you're just happy with having football, then we don't really want to follow the football program. We want to see you win and want to see you play championship football. And obviously, that's that's sort of where the gray area becomes, because if you want to see championship football, then winning is not enough. Going out there and playing badly, but winning against bad teams. And this kind of goes to your point to if you really want to look at it usc is playing above average football in a conference that's below average so you can talk about oh well hey you know what usc is five and one usc did this that and the other and they won this many games but i think the average trojan fan knows enough looking around college football to say the pac-12 is bad oregon is bad this is not a good This is not a good conference. So when you struggle to win week in and week out with these teams, you are bad. 
it's it's you're winning, but you're not really a good football team, and that's ultimately what USC football fans want to see. They Trojan fans want to see a team that can dominate the Pac-12 because they know that once you go up against the big boys like Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, etc., you're going to have to play a much higher level of football in order to be competitive. Yeah, no, I mean, I, there's some good points there. I would say. The USC fans, for the most part, don't want to hear the excuses. And it wasn't ideal that USC had to prepare for the first 24 hours against Washington and then kind of do Oregon work at night and play two short weeks in a row when Oregon had the week off. I get it. But there were so many other... Those are small inconveniences compared to the advantages USC had throughout its schedule. The first three games uh, for, for USC... They're always, you know, they were playing teams making their opening, you know, debut for the the football season. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of issues where the the teams that USC are playing have not been at full strength. And USC was lucky; they didn't, they weren't losing. You know, they had a couple offensive linemen out uh, in a game, but you know, it wasn't like any of their key players were out. And you want to talk about an inconvenience? San Jose State had to go 300 miles away to Humboldt to do their fall camp, and they haven't been able to you know, do much in Santa Clara County. Stanford had to go on this road trip. You know, they end up playing uh, at Oregon State instead of playing uh, at home. They've won their last three games after basically being kicked out and saying Santa Clara is like, you can't play football here. Uh, They beat Cal. They beat Washington on the road. They beat Oregon State on the road. You know, back-to-back-to-back road wins after being displaced from their home. I mean, if you want to, if that was happening to USC and you say, you know, they came out and played poorly, I get it. But, they had one less day to prepare. You know, I'm just not, you're so much more talented than the other team. I just can't give that as an excuse. There's just too many things, Gerard, that lined up in USC's favor to use like the, the small inconveniences as, as an excuse. It's 2020. You kind of have to roll with the punches. San Jose State's 6-0, and man. They roll with the punches. You know, Stanford's won their last three games. Like that to me is, is some, you know, dealing with adversity. I don't think USC's had that anywhere near that kind of adversity. Touche. And being that I'm obviously a recruiting analyst, you do have to sort of look at the last really big three signings that USC has. And I don't know how much you want to get into this, but obviously with ending the season on a sour note, and it's hard to always know how this impacts individual recruits when you lose a game and you don't necessarily look great. But you've got Corey Foreman, five-star defensive end, Corona Centennial, who we're not 100% sure whether he signed or not during the early signing period. He reportedly did not sign Wednesday, but the window goes from Wednesday to Friday. And there was a lot more confidence Friday that he was going to USC, but I'm not necessarily 100% sure if he actually signed or not. He's not going to announce his commitment to a school until January 2nd on NBC during the All-American uh, Bowl livecast that they're going to have. So you hope, if you're a Trojan fan, that he signed Friday morning. Don't <laughs> <laughs> come out with another top three and all of a sudden Oregon is in it. Because Kayvon Thibodeau played pretty well, and that just was not a good look for USC in terms of showcase. Now, I would say again, I thought the defense played well enough to win that game. I think the defense did some things and have done some things throughout the year. And really the most encouraging thing that I've seen from the defense is actual in-game adjustments. Todd Orlando throughout the year, throughout the season, the defense has not played great, 
all the time, but they've adjusted and sort of dialed in pass rushes. They've dialed in blitzes and they've made some adjustments to where the offense could come back in some of those games. And this was just one of those games where the offense, for whatever reason, Keaton Slovis was just not going to be able to get that ball downfield and make those plays. Still a lot of question marks about him and his health. And, you know, we're not health professionals and we're not doctors and, so it's, you don't want to go too much into that, but you just keep watching him and keep going, gosh, what what's going on with his arm? He couldn't even throw the ball away a couple times to get it out of bounds. And that's ultimately why they end up losing that game, I think, because of that interception. But down the stretch, you still have Sierra Wright, who has yet to sign a letter of intent, who's four-star cornerback that USC's off to heart. And you've got Rayshon Davis, the 6'1", 220-pound linebacker from modern day, who also has not signed yet. And so that's sort of the take back the West. And I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but there was a lot of take back the West chirping coming from Oregon players after that game. And a lot of stuff directed at the USC coaching staff, who has obviously used that mantra and been very vocal on social media about being dominant again and taking back the West. And you got a lot of those Oregon kids that were, some of those guys were picked over. You know, some of those names I saw popping up on Twitter were guys that, you know, USC didn't really recruit, maybe offered and just stopped recruiting, and they ended up at Oregon. They were chirping a lot at USC, and you saw the way that they played and the energy level they had throughout that game that it meant something to them, and you kind of got the feeling, eh, I mean, USC, it seems like the whole season, some quarters, some stretches, it seems like they have that energy and they really want to play, and there's some sense of urgency, and then there's other stretches in games where they don't have it. Yeah, no, and it, I mean that's a good all good points too. We're gonna we'll break down the offense and defense a little bit, just kind of get some thoughts. I'll give you a few numbers, but I do want to go to the recruiting aspect of it because this is Oregon's best class that they've ever signed. Um, you know, it's number six, I believe, in the country, number one in the Pac-12. USC had a chance to pass them if they if they land some of those big fish that are still out there, like the Corey Foremans and Sarah Wrights and Rayshon Davises. If they can get all those guys. Uh, you know, the potential to pass Oregon is there, but this is your recruiting rival right now. And you saw the, the likes of a Kayvon Thibodeau from Southern California just bawling out up there for the Ducks. And, uh, you know, there's there's the, the Mace Funas or whatever it is, the, the, the big names that USC wanted to end up at Oregon. This was a chance to make a statement. And I don't think USC was able to to do that. And there was a lot of chirping. There was a lot of back and forth on Twitter and taking back the West and all that, and the fact that Dante Williams came over, I, to me, Gerard, this was just like the perfect opportunity. You were supposed to play Washington. You would have rather played Oregon. Like, I feel like USC should have wanted to play Oregon, revenge the 56-24 to 24 loss uh, from last year, try to get some, you know gain some ground in the recruiting aspects of it, you know, not allowing Oregon to come down and get the two best tackles in the on the West Coast like they did this year get the best players from Southern California uh, each year. This was the great opportunity. And I think USC, you know, failed on that one, but th- there was, it was, I felt like there was a lot of checks being written, uh, you know, over the weeks of heading up to this Gerard, like on social media and, yeah. and USC couldn't cash them. <laughs> yeah. No, Tyler Vaughn's and, you know, Diamador Lenore kind of, hit back with that, you know, kind of pointing out a little bit of bulletin board material, which I don't think Tyler Vaughn's necessarily at the time was thinking that way and and thought that what he was saying was really going to be directed at Oregon or Oregon would take it that way. But then at the same time, you kind of 
look at it and go, well, yeah, of course Oregon's going to take it that way. They're going to use that if they can, and they did. And <laughs> Tiamino Lenore gets that interception early in the game, and it's like, wow, okay. I mean, they're ready to play, and you got them ready to play, but that's what you want if you're USC. I mean, that is exactly – I agree with your point 100%. And statement-wise, if you want to talk about successes and failures, yeah, ultimately you're directing a lot of that take back the West right at Oregon. And they know it. They know. They know that this is this goes off the field. It goes right to the recruiting trail. And Oregon has beaten USC straight up for recruits. And they are continuing to beat USC on the recruiting trail. And that is another aspect of this, which I see the desperation from the fan base. Because a lot of Trojan fans are very nervous that now they feel like they're behind in coaching. And they've been behind in coaching now you're behind in talent as well, and you're slipping in certain areas. And there have been areas in the last two to three years where USC at certain positions has just missed and whiffed, and they have not been able to get the type of players, the level of players that they're losing. So you're losing guys like J2 Fele and maybe um, you know top players at other positions at receiver, etc., and not necessarily replenishing with that same level of talent at the same time, losing some of that talent to Oregon. So they're getting better. And Oregon's playing big boy ball. They, they're they trying to fashion their, their style after big boy ball. Whereas USC has diverged and kind of gone into the air raid offense, which traditionally has been for minimizing, you know, marginal talent. It's, it's a, a scheme that has been for schools like Washington State, Texas Tech, that could not recruit at a high level. So it's this weird uh, dynamic here. It's that dichotomy of, you know, USC sort of going to an offensive scheme, which is for less talented teams and trying to make it work, which I know a lot of people kind of looked at it when they hired Graham Harrell and they felt like, first and foremost, I think people were excited and happy that USC actually had a system, right? That, that offensively, they sure. had something you could say, okay, that's a, that's a system that actually works run by a guy that's run it and, and come from the ground level of it. Whereas when you had the gumbo offense, you were sort of splicing together other people's systems. You were grabbing Sark system, which was a manipulation and a and sort of an augmentation of another college system that he sort of picked up because he was a pro style guy at BYU and USC. And then you had it kind of spliced and thrown together with Lane Kiffin's offense. So it's one of those things that there wasn't it wasn't a real offense it was just sort of an offense that clay helton and t martin saw other guys run so that was one thing where i think people felt like hey you know this is a positivity thing we're getting an offense that's actual that's an actual system but it's a system that is traditionally not used for schools like usc which has the talent advantage but now you look at oregon which would normally run a system like that i mean chip kelly sort of ran a system that was a college system supposed to be made around taking advantage of maybe marginal talent now that we switched positions all of a sudden oregon is running the offense that usc kind of sort of used to run where it was more running the ball and being more balanced and that was not a great oregon offense that was really oregon to me offensively in terms of talent and just terms of what they do and not much different than Utah. It kind of looked like Utah. It was really defense where you started to see the talent advantage that they had at certain positions and really exploiting that. And Thibodeau obviously was one guy. And you see, you know, when they've got maybe Justin Flo in there and they've got some of these other guys that they're signing, 
And now all of a sudden USC is playing a team that they're just getting beat in one-on-one situations. Yeah. And I think the relying on talent has been a problem and it worked this year. I mean, they, they relied on talent the entire year. They just had better players than everyone they played. And those guys made a great play at the end of the game. And now you're talking about a team. I think this year USC still is going to have the more talented roster. I think next year it's going to switch. I think that's what's going to happen. What happens when now USC isn't the most talented team anymore, where that's where you relied on. That's a problem. And it's not was, a problem, though, Ryan, because now they have the air raid offense. So now that you lose talent, <laughs> you actually get to use the offense that's for the marginal talent. That, see, Clayton was seeing this, you know, from, from miles away already. He was way ahead of you. He's playing chess and we're all playing checkers. Um, But we're going to get to the offense in a second. But just on the recruiting aspect, it comes out this week. So, you know, Auburn's job is open. Mario Cristobal's name comes up. Oregon signs Mario to a a big extension. Um, USC, you know, and Clay Helton, you know, every fan on Twitter is, you know, and on our message boards calling for Clay to be fired. So obviously, the, you know, the hot seat hasn't gone away that USC went 5-0 and in the regular season. That didn't save Clay Helton. I, I, to me, there's going to be a lot more negative recruiting you'll be able to throw USC's way now where Mario will be locked up. Doesn't look like he's going anywhere. It doesn't mean he's not going to. But, you know, if he doesn't take the Auburn job, he's signed an extension. They got something that they can sell up there. They can sell another win against USC. They can sell back-to-back Pac-12 championships. Uh, it doesn't seem like this is going to, you know, the, the recruiting is going to get any easier with Clay Helton continuing to be on the hot seat and, you know, Oregon already having the best class they've ever signed. And you got Mario Cristobal to an extension and a second Pac-12 championship in a row. Yeah. No, uh, I think <laughs> every point is, is, is valid and it's accurate. It's not going to get easier for USC. Uh, you're going to see Oregon be aggressive and it's really looking now at the 2022 class for the most part, because um, the 2021 class for the majority of the players that you're looking to sign, they're already signed. So you're looking ahead to 2022. And I mean, this is going to be next season, the year that we kind of figure out what USC is going to do. I think you and I agree. And I know Trojan fans are not going to want to hear this uh, for the most part. Clay Helton isn't going anywhere after this season. It would be. Yeah shocking to us if they made any kind of move after this season it's really got to come next season and that's going to be the question because you know it's not it's not going to be a a contract uh expiration uh usc still gonna if they have to make a move gonna have to pay to make that move to some extent it's not going to be as much obviously if they did it after this season but you gotta do it if the team doesn't play up to expectations. And you, like you said, on the recruiting trail, that dark cloud is hanging over Helton's head, which it's been hanging over his head for the last three or four years at this point. And it's just never sold the fan base. And the kids obviously hear that. You know, it resonates with the players. So many of these kids have parents that are huge Trojan fans. Um, so many of these circles with these top players – they're all SC fans. I mean, Justin Flo talked about that in the war room and sort of what went down with him at the end towards signing day and how, you know, he had a circle of USC people around him. And the same thing goes for Corey Foreman and the same thing goes for Rayshon Davis. Uh, Corey Foreman and Rayshon Davis were together watching the UCLA-USC game with several other uh, USC parents 
that uh, have players on the team. And so you're talking about a group of people that have grown up and, and idolizing and watching USC. But at the end of the day, they hear all the negativity and they also look at it and they want to look at it from a number standpoint in terms of what USC is doing from development, how many guys are getting drafted, you know, what kind of success they're having on the football field. And if you don't have those things, doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what your statements are, your mantras are. Um, you're going to have to fight a team that you've lost that is going to uh, push, you know, that they're beating you and also that they're playing um, maybe uh, from a from a scheme standpoint, something that's a, a little bit more, it resonates more with people that have grown up watching USC because that's what USC has done over the years. I mean, that's what the Pete Carroll teams did. They were a balanced team. They ran the ball. Um, this is not that USC team. So even when they are successful, it's sometimes a little hard for people to wrap their heads around, you know, that, oh, okay, USC, you're now just throwing the ball 60 times a game. Okay, uh, that's not what I'm used to. You know, it, it kind of goes back, like, there's two teams in the nation that, you know, it, it, this always comes up, and it's Miami and USC and how they win. And people always talk about, you know what, when Miami's got a good football team, they run the football. And when USC's got a good football team, they run the football, tailback you. And maybe that's just people being stuck in the mud, but it goes back to what I said with the talent advantage and what type of offense you're running and what type of offense you can run, and that's a big Debatable point. That's like a whole nother podcast in and of itself, but that's a debatable point as to, you know, what kind of scheme are you running and is it actually match the personnel that you can recruit and that you usually have? Yeah, no. And it, well, let's, let's break into the offense a little bit. It's the second week in a row that, that, you know, Keaton Slovis got outplayed by quarterbacks on the other side. I mean, uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson, much more efficient than Slovis was. He was uh, today, you know, for Friday night, 28 of 52, uh, for 320 yards, uh, two touchdowns, but three picks. He was sacked three times, 53.8% uh, completion percentage. You know, Slovis is in the 70s. That's where he should be. That's where that's what makes him a good quarterback, that efficiency. And it just wasn't there. He was under pressure all night. It wasn't a great night for, we'll talk about the defense a little bit, but Tyler Shuck and uh, they had the BC transfer, Anthony Brown, come in. But they, you know, they were more efficient than, um, what Keaton Slovis was for sure, them two as a combo. That was a, a new wrinkle that Oregon threw in. Like I said, we'll talk about it on the defensive side. But to, for Slovis to get outplayed again, um, I don't know. Something's quite, you know, not, something's not right uh, with with him. I mean, it didn't help that uh, Anthony, you know, uh, Amon Ross St. Brown uh, did go out if, with an injury later in the game. But you know, it's just it was one of those things where they couldn't really run the ball. Um, both step and car split the carries 12 carries for step. I mean, 12 for uh, car 13 for step, uh, you know, you, at the end of the day, you know, 38 yards, uh, net rushing that, you know, Slovis had minus 27 with the sacks, but, uh, you know, car ran for 40 and, and step ran for 25 on 13 carries. So that, you know, that's not going to get it done. Uh, as far as the run games go, we saw Slovis just really be, you know, having to move around. A lot because of the pressure. Thibodeau was in the backfield all the time. Uh, there was just a lot of issues on offense. And to me, Gerard, that's where the continuity from last year should have been because it's the second year in the system. And we've seen some great little stretches, quarters on offense. We just haven't seen certainly a complete game. And this was another example of that, you know, giving Oregon some short fields, you know, the mistakes that were made. 
Uh, I, I don't know, Jory. I, I'm not sure. I just this is surprising me because I wasn't someone that was a super, you know, super critical of like the air raid scheme because they needed a scheme. They needed they needed something that was a, a comprehensive plan that was like, here's our plan. Whatever it is, if it's running the triple option, like you had a plan and you would execute it. But this year, it just hasn't worked out as well as I thought it should have. Yeah, it's tough because statistically, you know, to say Slovis was so outplayed when the quarterbacks at Oregon only really pass for 100 yards. It's a different game they're playing, obviously. Yeah. USC's trying to pass the ball. They're throwing the ball a lot. And Oregon is doing the opposite. Oregon is protecting their offense as much as they can. They're protecting their quarterbacks because that's not their game. So it's a little apples and oranges. I do think that from a scheme standpoint, Oregon definitely had a game plan for USC, and USC didn't have a game plan for Oregon. It felt like USC's game plan was a game plan that could have been against any team. They could have gone out there and just thrown that out there against any team. There was nothing specific about it that seemed like they'd watched film and they'd really focused in on some specific things that Oregon did and tried to take advantage of that. It just didn't feel like it. It didn't feel like it from a matchup standpoint, and it didn't feel like it from a play design standpoint. And so that was an issue. I think that hurt them, and I don't know if that's a short week. I don't know if that's, you know, maybe Graham Harrell is is taking some calls and, and doing some interviews. And sometimes that becomes a distraction for some of these coordinators towards the end of the year. I mean, you would think that would have been a distraction for Mario Cristobal with all the talk about him and Auburn. So it shouldn't be an excuse, but you're trying to find reasons for why the offense sort of came out and just throw the, threw their helmets out there and just played and didn't really seem to have a real focused plan. The other thing, and we've talked about this with Slovis and not being – the same player as he was last year. The interesting thing was, and I've, and I've talked about this a little bit on the peristyle, is that when we watched him in high school, this is sort of more of what we saw from him. In terms of how he threw the ball, the trajectory of his ball, how he threw passes, Slovis was a player that threw a nice ball, a catchable ball, uh, a very good deep ball, but didn't have a great arm was a guy that really had to step into his throw to get the ball downfield and never really put the ball on a line with his intermediate or even his short passes. He was a manager. He wasn't terribly athletic, didn't show a ton of elusive or awareness abilities within the pocket, outside the pocket. And so he was sort of a stopgap between JT Daniels and Bryce Young. That's how everybody looked at it because that was sort of what was happening with USC. And you go, okay, JT Daniels is supposed to be the guy. He's going to be the generational talent. And then they've got Bryce Young coming down the pipeline for modern day in a couple years. So you need another quarterback. Go get the three-star guy out of Arizona. It's a solid get. Nobody's expecting him to be a world beater. (laughs) And then he has last year's a play where he just, you know, obviously didn't, nobody thought he was going to really have to play and be a starter. He gets thrown in there. Graham Harrell talks him up, loves him, and he plays really well. And he's throwing the ball on a line. And he's doing things that we didn't see in high school. And you're like, wow, okay. I mean, shoot. Uh, maybe we just didn't evaluate him enough. But now it's kind of sort of more like what we saw from him in high school. And it's hard because you what we saw from, from, a, from an arm standpoint last year 
you're wondering what happened to that. Where, where did it go? And I think those early interceptions in this game really, they really hurt his confidence and they really hurt his vision because I saw some openings. I saw some, some, some throws and some plays there where he pulled it down and should have let that ball fly. And again, I don't know if that was just because of the early interceptions, but kind of seen some of that throughout the year where it seems like he didn't trust his arm to make some of those throws. And that's just this lingering thing that I know a lot of people are coming away from this season wondering, you know, is the Iowa injury is he took some injuries last year, you know, last season he took some bumps. He was knocked out of some games. So is some of that a lingering effect from last season or is this just, you know, last season was a bit of a, a piff. It was a bit of a, a out of nowhere kind of like, hey, you know what? He was just playing above his head. It was the adrenaline. He was a freshman. But now that he's kind of starting to think about it and he's been coached up more, it's that 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 year where not only is he sort of coming back down to earth, but defenses have also had that whole offseason to watch him and to kind of glue in on his tendencies. And that's also a big thing because, you know, when you come in as a freshman, nobody's seen really film of you outside of high school, and it's a completely different thing. And, w- and with Sam Darnold, it was sort of that where Sam Darnold comes in as a redshirt freshman and was lights out Superman, and then the next year he has 22 turnovers on his own. And you can see where he was really sort of pushing it too much and trying to make plays where plays weren't there, and that's because defense had sort of figured out his tendencies and sort of sat on those tendencies and didn't let him do the things that he really were his strengths. Yeah. I agree with all that. Um, I want to talk. We, we'll get to the de- defense in a second. I want to talk about the run game a little bit too, because run game. I, what, what what run game? One point four yards a carry. I don't know if that's called a run game. <laughs> I got a text from uh, a, a guy that does a lot of NFL scouting. He said, "I don't understand why they condense the formation when they want to run. Most finesse offenses spread you out to create room. Yes, they aren't they aren't physical enough to pack it in tight and run it and." You're also just seeing basically the running back right next to Keaton Slovis, and it's just mostly just this delayed handoff sort of thing. And they're coming, you know, they're they're trying to take off from a stopped, you know, they're they're at a standstill. And then you got there's no downhill running, there's okay. no running up to the quarterback. It just doesn't seem like schematically this is it's making a whole lot of sense. I don't know what you what do you think, Gerard? But they they are, they are packed in, but they're not physical enough to do that. I don't get that. That's a great point. I really not I did not think about that and that's very true that yeah, uh, traditionally when you have a spread offense, you have those teams that are very finesse, they want to take advantage of space. And so you have those type of running backs that are small running backs, you have wide splits with your offensive lines and you're trying to spread the offense out or the defense out and not uh, and have to make them make one-on-one tackles in space. Whereas yeah, quite a few times last uh, the last couple games, you've seen bunch formations and you've seen the receivers in tight and then they run the ball. Now, you know I've been on this for a long time about USC in the shotgun running the ball and giving mesh read looks without having a true quarterback option. A lot of times it, there's no real read there. They're just going to hand the ball off and teams over the last few years have just – They focused in on that. They dialed in on the fact that the quarterback is not a threat to run. And so when you're running out of the shotgun, it's just much easier to see where the handoff is coming and where it's going. And a lot of times you get the defensive ends, the safeties, outside linebackers crashing in from the edges and attacking that play from the backside and making a tackle for loss. 
And when you get those tackles for losses, you put your offense in a much difficult, much more difficult situation. College football offenses traditionally, I think, and I don't have a statistic here to, to back this up, but I, I, I feel like there's probably a good statistic that says that, you know, negative plays probably kill a lot of drives in college football. And when you have those tackles for losses and all of a sudden now you're in second and 15 or second and 14, it sort of changes the dynamic of the whole series. And, and you have to dig yourself out of a hole. And a lot of college offenses really can't. And when you don't have a running quarterback on top of it that, you know, at any time can gash the defense for 20 yards. And we've seen USC be on the other side of that where they've had some quarterbacks that have been able to run. It almost flips the field. And that was another thing that USC had a really, really, it was really weird because when they had the field, when they had a short field, it seemed they couldn't score. They couldn't take advantage of it. And yet the two touchdowns that they had, they had 80 yard fields that they had to go and they made those touchdowns. So that, that's kind of a weird thing. But normally you want those short fields. And when you have an athletic quarterback, you can make that happen. And USC's not doing that they don't have an athletic quarterback that's going to run the ball and it's not even having an athletic quarterback it's just having that that option of the quarterback being able to run for six yards on third and two because he keeps the ball and the defense is not respecting him running the ball and it just it doesn't happen you know man we haven't seen that since sam darnold which is yeah. odd because sam darnold was so successful doing it but i was told a long time ago by a former usc coach uh in that offense that Clay Helton has always been really nervous about running quarterbacks just because he wants to call play and know that play is going to be executed specifically. And they want him to run the playbook and they don't want that sort of wild card variable of what's going to happen because he's going to run the football. But the truth of the matter is in college football, most successful offenses anymore have a quarterback that can run the ball, not just run the ball in a scramble situation, but run the ball by design because you're running so much out of the shock in these days and you have to make the defense respect that. And if they're not respecting that, then they're crashing down off the edges and they're getting tackles for losses, which again, I, I think statistically, if you're to, to do the research on it, it kills a lot of offenses. I mean, forget the penalties and the holding calls that can kill a drive, but just tackles for losses, I think kill drives. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I mean, that's, for sure, as far as tackles for losses go, I mean those those negative plays uh, can absolutely kill you. I think, uh, yeah, I got. I'm trying to pull up which uh, ta- how many tackles for loss Oregon had. They had a bunch of them in this game, but um, I would say switching over to the defensive side of the ball. You know, Oregon's first six drives, three plays, three plays, three plays, three plays, four plays, four plays. Now. They got three touchdowns out of those six drives. Um, so there were some short fields there for sure. But I think that the, the USC defense overall played pretty well. I mean, 243 total yards on 60 plays, 4.05 yards per play. You know, I think you'll take that. Yes, there have been some mistakes um, for sure that kept drives going. Uh, you know, they Oregon did have a, a wrinkle. They brought in the transfer, like I mentioned, Anthony Brown from um, from Boston College. I don't think he had played a snap. He threw two touchdown passes. He only threw four passes, but two of them were for touchdowns. He would come in short yardage situations and, you know, take off and run or, uh, you know, ro- scramble a little bit and then dump a blow pass off. But he was effective, I thought, in this game. And, you know, Tyler Shuck, it was, I mean, he was 8 of 15 with an interception, two touchdowns, and 91 yards. You know, he was 
you had that same percentage basically as Keaton Slovis, about 53%. Um, but they didn't ask him to do that much. And, and it just kind of went that way. I mean, and when you think about it, okay, so you're not really going to use the passing game. They only threw 19 passes all game. And four of those were from, you know, your backup quarterback. Okay, you're going to run the ball. Well, C.J. Verdell, their best running back, wasn't dressed. He didn't play in this game. They got Devin Williams back, which was nice, but um, he didn't catch a pass. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the overall numbers, 135 yards rushing. Um, you know, it it's, it's just not like they were doing anything really well, but they took advantage of the mistakes that USC was making. And when they got opportunities, unlike USC on short fields, they cashed them in. And those first two interceptions turned into Oregon touchdowns. And, you know, really that was the difference in the game. But I, I didn't think the defense played, you know, bad, Gerard. There were some some bad moments, but you're always going to have that. You're playing against a, another college team. But just looking at the numbers, it just seems like, you know, Oregon didn't do that much, but they did take advantage when they did have those opportunities. Yeah, I agree. I think the defense played definitely well enough to win the game. I think that they were in some difficult situations. And like and like you said, there's been, you know, certainly in the beginning of games where they've looked a little out of sorts. You know, the tackling has been bad. I mean, I go back to the beginning of the season, uh, Arizona game. I mean, look at the UCLA game. There was some terrible tackling in the beginning of that game. First half of that game, USC just looked like they couldn't tackle anything. And UCLA was using very simple plays on the outside – Swing passes, off tackle, just pe- just basically going after the hash marks and beating USC. But USC adjusted, and Tim or, or Todd Orlando definitely sort of has that ability to sort of go, okay, I'm gonna wait a little bit here, and I'm gonna adjust. And, and there's a little bit of a timing aspect to it defensively, of sort of letting the offense put out what they're gonna do. And then you countering and countering in a specific time where they cannot counter your counter. And you used to see that with Pete Carroll. You know, there used to be games where man, teams would come out in the first quarter and they'd just run the ball. And you go, oh, my gosh, what's going on? It looks like the defensive line is on skis here. Like, how the heck can they, can, they, can they just all of a sudden look this bad? And then they'd make an adjustment. They'd shift. They'd do some slants. They'd do some different twists. They'd do some things. And you would see where, okay, now they've adjusted. Can the offense just again? Mostly they cannot because you've got 20 hours, and in 20 hours you've got a game plan, and you kind of have to go with it. But defensively, it's not true. Defensively, it's a different way for preparing a game. So you've seen some things like that happen with Todd Orlando in this defense where they've been able to adjust, and Oregon was protecting their offense as much as anything. You know, they weren't really trying to go out there and throw the ball around and, and go and play, you know, a, a, a game where they're going to, you know, go 40 to 40 with USC. They were playing a game where they want to play conservative, much the way that UCLA was playing. It was kind of the same sort of game plan of being conservative, running the ball, not putting a too much on your quarterback. And I think, you know, truthfully, um, Dorian Thompson Robinson was, was a much better quarterback. U, U, UCLA probably could have been more aggressive because I think he was yeah. much dialed in in that game than either of the Oregon quarterbacks. The Oregon quarterbacks were not a real threat to do much passing the football. And so this was a game that, and I said this some point, you know, in that second quarter going in the third quarter, if USC could have got a lead in this game, if they could have, you know, all of a sudden put the onus on Oregon's offense to have to do something, if they go down and they score to tie the game in the fourth quarter, 
And then they put Oregon back on the field with, let's say, a minute 30, you know, something left in the game. I'm nervous as hell if I'm Oregon. I don't know if I want to play that game. I, I don't know if, I'm, I'm, if I want to rely on my offense to be able to go down the field. You might actually get a play defensively and be able to win that game because Oregon's offense is just that shaky. So it, it really was a combination of Oregon's offense is just not that great. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it sort of develops. I'm not a big Mario Cristobal fan. I, I'm not a big believer that he's some type of an elite coach or whatever. Yeah, UCLA could have been a much more aggressive. I think he's a, a better quarterback than either of the quarterbacks that Oregon had. And offensively, there was just a bit more that they were able to do. Oregon really wanted to play conservatively. And I think if USC would have had that opportunity to tie the game in the fourth quarter and put the onus back on the Ducks offense to have to go down the field and score to win the game. Oh, I don't know if they would have won it. A minute 30 and without offense, I think USC's defense would have been salivating. And I wonder what Mario Cristobal would have done in that situation if he would have put it on his offense to go down and win the game. I think they felt confident with their kicker and maybe, okay, we're going to go out there. We're going to play conservative. We're not going to chuck the ball downfield. We're going to see if USC gives us some short stuff to the tight ends and do basically what they were doing, you know, just running the ball and kind of hitting the edges with the tight ends and then be able to get in the field goal range. But I think that was the one thing USC, you know, they obviously never did in this game. They never really put the onus, the pressure on Oregon's offense to have to go out there and really play and and and, and make plays. Yeah, if you're not going to force them to, you know, when you get a team like that and you're they don't they're not trying to throw the ball on on third and nine like they ran the ball and they pick up a first down actually doing that. Um, they were not going to take risks and turn the ball over. And USC has to be able to take advantage of that. Too talented of a team to not take advantage of that. Interesting enough, Clay Helton said after the game, depending on how much time was left, he would have went for two or thought about going for two, which doesn't make sense to me because like what you were saying, Oregon was fine playing with the lead that way. But then you tie it up and you're like, okay, drive the drive the length of the field and, and, and score and see what you can do. I don't think that was what Oregon was built to do uh, on Friday night. So Clay on going for two, I don't think that would have been the right call if he ended up doing that. No, no, not at all. I mean, I can see where maybe they don't want to play overtime because then your red zone offense and obviously USC has not been great in the red zone this year and they weren't good in the red zone this game. Oddly, they had really little success when they actually had a short field. It seemed like you know, with Oregon, they were taking advantage of the short field early in the game. USC, like I said earlier with the interception that they had right before the half, they completely blow that opportunity to get points on the on, on the on the board. Um, maybe that's what Helton was thinking about. Just, you know, we're not we're not playing well in the red zone and we don't want to play that overtime sort of red zone back and forth game. I don't know. But yeah, I mean I I, I would I would put the confidence more into my defense and Oregon maybe making a mistake there with a minute plus left trying to get down the field and maybe giving me an, a, an opportunity to actually get my offense back on the field because they turned the ball over. Yeah, similar like the Rose Bowl from 2016. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's, that's exactly what I was – yeah, yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, um, although that was a much better Penn State offense, just saying. like that, you, You're putting a team in a position to try and make a, a, a play and your defense would have an opportunity to force a turnover. Um, I want to talk about special teams real quick because I've thought that USC special teams have been a lot better uh, this season. 
Uh, Sean Snyder comes in and you weren't seeing the like the one great play, but the three really crappy plays. And that's what kind of, you know, USC special teams had been. I'd rather see just all the plays be kind of average with a couple of good ones or a great one mixed in there. You had the great one last week, uh, you know, USC, UCLA, and the, the kickoff return was a good one. You know, you had some bad kickoff returns before when you needed to make one. This game was exactly like from the last couple of years, Gerard. You have maybe the most amazing special teams play you've seen in a long time. The onside kick that was like beautifully planned, well executed, taking advantage. You talk about game planning. There was some game planning there. They knew what was going on with how Oregon was defending the outside on the onside kick. It looked like a pass from Parker Lewis to Brew McCoy. He's recovered two onside kicks this year. Amazing. But there was also so many bad special teams plays. Um, I mean, penalties. I think USC had nine penalties for 98 yards. At least three of them were on special teams, you know, getting a, a good kickoff return. Certainly, Talanoa Hufunga, you know, running, you know, tackling the punter after the ball is away and keeping a, an Oregon drive alive. Just mistakes like that. Uh, a couple, I think, early on where USC got pinned in there. You know, USC started inside their 10 yard line, I think, three drives in a row. There was just so many bad special teams plays. That one great one couldn't make up for it. Plus, USC didn't take advantage of it. But this, to me, Gerard looked like, oh, they had 10 men on a punt, and they had to call timeout in the first half. Those are the kind of things we write about when John Baxter was running the special teams. I'm not sure what happened, but this looked like an homage to the special teams of old for USC. Yeah, although, you know, you can't really put Telenohu Funga's you know, penalty on Snyder or, you know, there's the, the penalties are sort of, uh, I don't know. It's hard to know what you put that on. Uh, you know, it, it, if it's, it's something that you having an issue with consistently throughout the season, you say, okay, yeah, there's a problem there. They need to do some things where they're coaching that up, but this was just kind of one game where they just had a lot of penalties and that, particular penalty was just really bad it was at a really bad time they're getting off it they're getting the offense back on the field you've got some momentum and you just i it was a strange deal where you felt like maybe if telenoa would have laid out a little more he could have blocked the punt yeah but Eddie kind of comes in and he's trying not to sell out too hard and then ends up basically just tackling the punter and that was just, uh, you know, yeah. what, it's just one of what do you do? I mean, you know, he's out there, he's playing really well, he's doing a lot of great things, and that was just a bad play. I, I, I agree with you. I know where you're going. I mean, that definitely. Well, that's- I mean, I think that's a good point, though, where, like, that's more of a team penalty issue. That's not necessarily a special team issue. It happened on special teams, but we've seen those kind of mistakes happen all over the field, not just special teams. Like, maybe not saying, hey, that's a special teams problem. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's sort of, you know, like I get I go back to the whole the formula of USC losing is pretty damn consistent and that's pretty damn frustrating for Trojan fans cuz there's things that happen over and over again it's like how come that is not getting fixed? That's the problem when it's a myriad of issues, obviously that's not good either, you know, when you're losing a bunch of different ways, but when it's the same thing over and over again, it's that groundhog day thing and that's, you know, early on in the season there was a lot of that because it was, gosh, we, we've seen this before. We've watched this movie before. We saw when they were losing Arizona State. Yeah, we've seen how USC loses like this. And then they go to Arizona. It's like, yeah, this is the kind of game that USC loses because of these specific things. And penalties is one of those things. Obviously, penalties for most teams is going to be an issue. 
Pete Carroll's teams, oddly enough, had a lot of penalties. Usually the most penalized team in the Pac-10 at that point. And certainly it was almost statistically impossible. That was kind of a little bit of a controversy there where they were like the most penalized team every week. And then the team that they played were the least penalized team every week. And so people were like, what, what's going on here? But that was one instance where, you know, penalties didn't seem to be the biggest deal in the world. But for this team, penalties are bad. And the penalties, I think most of all, it's the timing of these penalties that seems to be such an issue. You know, it's like the red zone penalties they have on offense. They have a, an offsides. They have a holding call. They have something weird go on when they're on the 10-yard line, and it kills a drive. It kills their scoring opportunity. Um, and and like with Telenoa Funga, that was an opportunity where they're getting off the field. The offense is getting ready to go back down, and they have momentum, and it was just another one of those things that just killed the momentum. So I agree with you overall. I think the special teams has been a bit better. Certainly, it's not that really weird pendulum swing where you get you know one really good play out of the special teams. You get a field goal block. You get a punt return. And then you get like two or three other things that are just disastrous. And that was basically John Baxter's uh, special teams. And USC could not, they could not overcome those, you know, in the past. And so I, I think having just a special teams that are just solid and better and, and more consistent is definitely an improvement for USC. And thus far in the season has been that. It's just unfortunate for them in this game, you did have some of those bad kind of swings. Um, but it wasn't – I didn't feel like it was necessarily like the special teams not being great. Now, I, I, they did have an instance where they had to call timeout back on their own end zone basically because they only had 10 guys on the field. And, you you know, the timeout situation with Clay Helton and the, and the, the team has been another sort of point of contention with a lot of Trojan fans. They take some weird timeouts, you know, during yeah. time – it's like, why now? What are you doing? I mean, you're going to be backed up. In, you're already backed up to your end zone, and people were probably saying, why are you taking a timeout now? But it was a 10-man on the field, and we've seen that be an issue for USC on special teams before where they're not getting enough bodies on the on the field, and it's just guys not paying attention on the sideline, which, you know, again, maybe that's just part of the whole sort of malaise thing where you look at the offense, you look at the team, and it's just a lot of lackadaisicalness. You see no energy. Yeah. You see them kind of sleepwalking out there and you know guys are not getting out in the fields because they're not paying attention they're just sitting there on the side like oh i'm i'm supposed to be on special teams now yeah dude you're on special teams now yeah and there was also a partial pl- uh, punt block uh you know in the end zone and then you know usc ends up missing a field goal uh you know like i think it was a 41 yarder and yeah. oregon's walk-on kicker hits a 40 yarder you know like that that dude hadn't kicked in a in a football game until three weeks ago against Oregon state. Like that's the first time he's kicked in a football game. He was never, he never kicked in a high school game and he's making uh field goals for Oregon now. So uh, yeah, just, there was a lot of little things that went wrong and maybe, you know, it's a general uh, attitude of the team that we've seen a consistency thing there. And you, it goes to the top with Clay Helton. Um, yeah. What do you, before, before we, I, what do you make of that? Like that, that, that's a, you know, the lack of sort of, uh, inspiration it seems coming out of the tunnel in games this season and outside of the Washington State game which you know was like man they needed to save some of those plays in the first half for other games it, it just seems like USC has been really they've had a hard time coming out focused and ready to play it seems like so many of these games this season and some games in the past as well where there have been quarters and halves 
where they literally look like they're just not interested in playing that night. Yeah. I, it, I mean, it has to go to the top for me, Gerard. It's, it's, you can make changes around, you know, like this, you're looking at this, you're a real estate agent and you're trying to sell this house. And I think when Mike Bone and Brandon Sosta and they came in and they realized there's some major problems around and they've done a, you know, a pretty good job trying to fix a lot of those problems. But there's a big one with the head coach that they, you know, from what we're hearing is going to be really hard to fix because of the contract extension he was given from Lynn Swan and how much money it would, it would cost. So, you know, you can fix the, you know, the landscaping and wow, these are some beautiful flowers and it's a great picket fence that you have around and, um, oh, you put up this nice like weather vane and this, the, you know, the curb appeal for this house is beautiful, but you didn't change anything in the house and the house is Clay Helton. And as much as you are fixing around him, I don't think you can fix him unless he's going to make major changes to how he runs the football program. He's still running things. You have someone running the offense. You have someone running the special teams. You have someone running the defense. They're all doing their individual stuff. And they're, I think they're doing a good job in general, but you know, you're answering to the top and there's still going to be that, you know, that's the, you know, the personality of the team usually takes on the personality of the head coach. And I still think no matter how great your coordinators are and how much support you put in resources and things like that, it still comes down to who's the head man. And he can say that he's a chain of command guy, but that's fine that with the athletic department. But when it comes to chain of command, you know, Graham Harrell's not telling Clay Helton what to do. Uh, Todd Orlando's not telling them what to do. They can do what they need to do for their individual units, but that's you know, it still ends with Clay Helton being the head coach, and I think that's what the the problem is. And you're not going to overcome that by you know replacing every assistant on the staff again. You have to Clay Helton has to either be better as a head coach or they have to get a new head coach. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rook. So I wanted to end on some transfer portal stuff potential. It just so here's where I'm going with this. Uh, USC's five and one. They were five and zero oh heading into this game, and even if USC won the game, I don't think USC fans were going to feel great. There's still like this sort of sense of, you know, why is USC toying with these teams that it's you know not better than? Since it's Christmas time, my favorite movie, Christmas Story. If you remember Ralphie, what does he want? He wants an official Red Rider Carbon Action 200 shot range model air rifle, right? That's what he wants for Christmas with the compass in the stock. Compass in the stock. He gets under, you know, under the tree and he's opened up presents and he's got the, the bunny suit from Aunt Clara, which is terrible. Uh, you know, he's playing with his different toys. And it's great. You know, you have a great Christmas. He's sitting on the couch with his dad, offers him a, a sip of wine. Uh, and he didn't get everything he wanted. You know, he the thing he really wanted was that 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 the BB gun, you know. Um, and for USC, I feel like all the other stuff is like, yeah, you got some presents and stuff, but unless you get the Red Rider, you know, BB gun, this, the season was a waste. And, you know, Ralphie gets it in the end. The dad finds it behind the, the piano or whatever it is. USC didn't get it. You know, they lose the this championship game. The, there is no Red Rider. You can, you know, write to Santa next year and try and get it. Does this cause, as much as the USC fans going absolutely ballistic, Gerard, as we've seen on the message boards and on Twitter, does this cause some sort of riff in the program itself? And are we going to see guys that are just like, yeah, uh, I'm transferring out of here. This is not where I want to be. Or are we going to see some recruits that signed get cold feet 
uh, and second thoughts of where they want to go. Do you see something like that happening, or is that just uh, you know, or, or being too alarmist if you're going to even suggest something like that? I don't see that happening with the recruits that have signed, and I don't see that happening with the majority of the roster. I think there's two things at play, however, that do make it possible that you could see some players leaving. And I think the first thing is the fact that the NCAA has announced that any transfers this year will not have to sit out. That is going to be very interesting across the board for everybody. Um, Not being penalized to transfer is just in general going to create a bit of a influx into the porthole with a lot of different players just looking to get playing time. Guys to just feel like, hey, I can go. There's a spot for me here. I can hit the ground running in spring football and 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 have a new and just basically get a new beginning. And a lot of guys want to get that and they want to have that. And if you don't have to sit out that year and it's guaranteed, that's going to be a lot of incentive for guys to move around. So, you know, it's and, and, and the fact that these guys are getting another a year of eligibility as well. It's all going to happen where you're going to get, I think, a huge wave of guys that are going to transfer. And it's not because of any one thing other than the fact that they can do it without having to sit out. Um, B, with USC specifically, I do think at the running back position, this has been an issue. And we've seen it kind of spill over to the recruiting trail because Brandon Campbell, 5'9", 190-pound running back from Katy, Texas, who signed with USC. So he is signed. There have been a few different social media posts by Brandon Campbell where he has expressed his frustration with the lack of running game that USC had. He even went so far as to repost some messages from the Trojan coaching staff that he received, which was not ideal. Um, But he's a guy that has been a little bit um, vocal publicly about that. Now, I don't think he's going to try to get out of his letter of intent or anything of that nature. But I think... That can be echoed within the depth chart at USC because you've got Stephen Carr there, you've got Marquis Stepp, you've got Keenan Christian, and you're not running the football very successfully and you're not really making the, the, the running game a featured part of the offense at all. And so not only are you not having success, but you're just not necessarily making it a part of the offense. And so those two senior running backs are going to get another year. I don't see Vi Melapai leaving USC. I don't think he's draftable right now, so he'll be back. Does Stephen Carr come back? Does he feel like there's enough carries for him to come back? Uh, Marquis Stepp, does he feel like there's enough carries for him to come back? This is going to be something that USC fans are going to have to watch because it's something that I've heard some rumblings about. And uh, and again, I don't want to be an alarmist, and I don't want to say, oh, yeah, USC is going to lose this guy and that guy. I I don't know uh, how, how... that's going to shake out. But I think that's going to be something that they're going to have to watch. And I think that, you know, certainly um, they're going to be looking in the porthole. I like to call it the porthole because it is. <laughs> I think to get some guys that, you know, this is a, a year where they could have a full class and I think they can have the rides available that USC will be aggressive. And, and I talked about this a little bit uh, in some of our super relatives and some of our signing day stuff that USC is sort of looking at the transfer portal as more of a, it's basically junior college recruiting. It, it's taken the place of junior college recruiting because with Juco players, there's always that issue with academics 
and you don't really have that issue when you're dealing with a guy who's already been in a four-year college. So in terms of the, the actual transfer and the transfer of transcripts and everything like that, it's much more seamless. And I think USC would much more rather go that way. Even if a kid has to sit out a year, I think that they would rather go that way. And the fact that they're not going to have to sit out this year, they're going to be very aggressive and they're going to go push for a lot of transfers. Now, you know, after this game and this season, is it easier? Well, obviously, it's not going to be easy to go out and try to get a running back transfer. Um, they need <laughs> They need to get offensive line transfers because you're going to lose most likely Elijah Vera Tucker, who was a sort of hot fix at left tackle for USC. And I think overall he played a very good season, and I think he did help his draft stock quite a bit. He didn't play particularly well against uh, Thibodeau in a couple of the matchups that they had. Um, but I think overall this year, playing left tackle, he's probably a guard in the NFL level, showing that he can at least play that position, he can play in space like that, I think did himself very well. But he's probably going to leave early. Who do you have behind him? And this is going back to what we said about USC and recruiting and why Trojan fans are very nervous is because they're not replenishing some of these four-star and five-star guys that were recruited under Steve Sarkeesian and early on in Clay Helton's tenure as head coach, those guys are being replaced by three-star guys now. And that's, you know, and you're, you're depending a lot on player development to get guys up to that level. Your Austin Jacksons, your Elijah Vera Tuckers are leaving, and you're not necessarily getting that same level of players. And that's what I was saying with Oregon and just including the general with USC – if you've got some of those positions, they, you know, some positions they've recruited well, but as a class, they've had some positions where they've whiffed and those can really hurt you down the line. If your offensive line recruiting is down, your linebacker recruiting, you've just got one position where for whatever reason you've just whiffed on some of the top players. It leaves you very vulnerable. Yeah. I, to be fair, uh, shotgun reported on instant analysis that he had heard that Elijah Vera Tucker was going to be a game time decision. We didn't get an official Injury report from him, but I, I got a text saying it, that he was hurt, and then and Shotgun got some information on that too. So, uh, you know, I, I think he helped himself. There's no way I think he sticks around. That's the problem, Gerard. Is I feel like next year's team is not going to be as talented as this year's team, and you've been relying on talent to win games. It's going to be a lot harder when your team's a little less talented. Yeah. Exactly. That's the thing is that, you know, you're going to probably lose Telenoa Hufunga and maybe even Isaiah Polamau. The safeties have been lights out this year. The secondary has yep. played really well for USC this year. And you're I mean, that's that's a big time playmaker that you've got on the edge. You're going to have to replace him and there's going to be some freshmen there. And now USC has done really well. I mean, this is this is again, this is the game of recruiting. They've gone out and they've got three, four guys that can play safety that should be able to get on the field and contribute. Are they going to be Telenoa Hufunga? Probably not. But they're going to be solid players, and they're all four-star guys, and you have a, a a selection of them. You've got a few guys. So it's not one of those things where you, you get one guy that's a four-star and you cross your fingers and hope to God that he ends up being the guy you hope he is. You know, you get a, a, a few of those guys. And that's what, you know, really great teams do. You know, Alabama's and, and Clemson, you're, you're recruiting positions and you're getting three or four guys. So you have a choice of, hey, maybe one of these guys just doesn't have it. Maybe it just doesn't click with him. And, you know, we don't have all our eggs in that one basket. We've got two other guys we also recruited that are going to step in and they're also going to compete for that position. And again, you have composition, competition at the position as well, which is a big deal. And so at the safety position, you're going to have uh, those guys. You're going to have Jalen Smith. 
who's who's uh, you know a, a a little smaller guy, a little more five ten, five eleven, uh, one hundred eighty five pounds, but I think really instinctual around the line of scrimmage and offers you some of the things that you've seen a little bit from Max Williams, a little bit what you've seen from Talano Hufunga, but still a very skilled player, and I think a guy that can make a lot of noise at that nickel safety position. Um, you've got uh, you know Anthony Beavers, who's another guy that's really good around the line of scrimmage. You've got uh, Zamirian Gordon, who's the bigger, more physical guy, about the 6'2", 190-pound range, who's a good-looking kid. And then you've got Kalen Bullock, who's probably the best overall skill player, at the safety position that USC assigned, he's a guy that played some receiver and is a pretty good receiver, and so his ball skills are really good. I think he's a little more of a single high guy, a little more of a safety that you'd put in space that'd be more of a coverage guy. So I think it's more Beavers, maybe Jalen Smith, maybe Gordon. Those are the guys that are going to probably have to compete for Telenoa's spot. Um, but at least with that position, you've got some dudes there you know, that are coming in. It's more of the offensive line you still kind of recruiting a bunch of three-star guys, and you're hoping that you find, you know, the Keaton Slovis or the, the the diamond in the rough of the three stars to be able to come in. And as you know, true freshman, probably not, because that's just one of those things that even when you have a good, you know, guy that's a four-star guy, you really don't want to throw a left tackle out there that's a freshman. But you need to have those guys that they recruited in the 2020 class step up, end up being guys. And and we've seen a little bit of them, but you know, Cortland Ford was playing guard there. We saw a little bit of Jonah Monheim. Um, those guys are three-star guys that USC recruited. They're going to have to be coached up to be able to play next year because USC just doesn't have a lot of depth uh, with experienced players that are you know, highly touted guys that they got in the 2020 or 2019 class. Yeah. All right, Gerard. Well, hey, we went over an hour um, emergency podcast. It was great to have you on because people love it when you're on talking some football not just recruiting and uh, i love it too so uh hopefully people enjoyed this um and uh yeah we'll uh look forward to talking to you again down the road but thanks again for coming on thank you for having me uh you know happy holidays to everybody uh be safe and um you know just uh just relax man it's it's trojan football we all you know i understand people love it and they're emotional and they're emotionally invested and i get it and it's great you know it's one of those things but hey you know what you know it's there's a lot going on in the world don't get too caught up in it you know just uh and and please no personal attacks on the peristyle (laughs) yes please we do appreciate that you know you can you can say you don't like uh clayton as a head coach but you can't say you know he's the worst person in the world and blah 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 like we don't you know you don't need to personally attack people you can be very critical of guys make a lot of money to do a job like this you can certainly be critical of them but you don't have to have personal attacks Uh, All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up. That is Gerard Martinez. I am Ryan Abraham. Thanks so much for tuning in to this emergency edition of the Paracel Podcast, and we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.